Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive 2014 Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Rudy, I have a big problem. I can't find a place to buy or sell gaming products. You know, I had that problem, too. Then I went to my DM. He told me about NobleKnight.com. Isn't that one of those internet stores? They are, but they're also a brick-and-mortar game store. Since using Noble Knight, I feel great! I can buy D&D and other tabletop RPG products from any edition, even stuff that's out of print. That does sound pretty great. Just pretty great! Get this, Noble Knight has all that, at a discounted price. And with Noble Knight, I can even sell them my old gaming products I'm not using anymore. Oh, wow. I've got to check it out. You don't have to ask your DM if NobleKnight.com is right for you. We're pretty sure it is, since you're listening to a podcast about the minutiae of tabletop RPGs. People who use NobleKnight.com experience joy, having more money in their bank accounts, and lots of awesome gaming sessions. Seriously, why haven't you checked them out yet? Jeff Greiner uses Noble Knight, so should you. Well, my life has changed. It sure is, buddy. Soon, all our lives will be changed. So, we, Bob Salvatore is supposed to be on the panel. He's not quite here yet. He's shadow mounted. <laughs> so, I thought we'd just give him another couple minutes before we start. So, we're like five past now. And uh, what I thought we could do is just go through introductions. Uh, I'm Mike Merles. I'm the senior manager for the R&D team on D&D. I am not really on this panel. I, it's about our authors and our writers and our creators. I'm more to facilitate stuff. So hopefully Bob can get here and I can get off stage and maybe just help guide the conversation. But I thought we'd start over here with Jim and introduce yourselves and let everyone know what you're working on with D&D. Cool. Uh, my name's Jim Zub. I'm a uh, comic writer. I've been doing work for Marvel, DC, Image... IDW, all sorts of people, and I'm a lifelong gamer, and uh, 12-year-old me would be completely freaked out to tell you that I'm doing the new Dungeons & Dragons comic that's coming out. So, uh, uh, Minsk and Boo are back. I don't know if you guys heard this. It's going to be called Legends of Baldur's Gate. It comes out in October. You can pre-order from your local comic shop now. we get got a special exclusive preview you can only get here at the show, and all of you in this room are going to get one when you leave. So... <laughs> it's a role for initiative. Well, I don't want you to go last. <laughs> <laughs> hey, green one! Nobody cares about that. Um, I'm Erin M. Evans. I write the Brimstone Angels series for Forgotten Realms. Um, my most recent book was The Adversary, the third book of the summary. And Woo! Woo! Uh, my next book, Fire in the Blood, comes out in October. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Bob, so tell the people who you are. Long time I see. Yeah. We were just doing intros, so you and Ed can figure out who wants to go next. He's up. Okay. 
My name is Ed Greenwood. I created the realms, so I've been writing realm stories for 49 years. And you were how old? Six. How long? Yes, I was six years old when I wrote my first realm story. The world was black and white. There was no internet. You done? Yeah. My name is Troy Denning. <laughs> I'm Bob Salvatore, and I've been playing in Ed Sandbox for 27 long years. <laughs> um, d- I did mine before you watched Go again, I didn't hear it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a comic writer, I don't, I don't even... I don't even belong. <laughs> My name's Jim Zub. I'm writing the new D&D comic, but I'm just following in the footsteps of these wonderful, wonderful people. Applause. <laughs> so, uh, to kick things off, uh, we've had our intros. So, uh, if you've been following D&D storylines, we had the Sundering storyline, and we had our novels around that. And now, with Gen Con, the launch of 5th edition D&D, we're moving into the Tyranny of Dragons storyline. Woo! And then obviously more storylines in the future. So I thought it'd be kind of useful. Uh, Jim's comic takes place in Tyranny of Dragons, but I know each of our, our other authors, uh, your characters experienced the Sundering in some way. So I thought maybe we'd each just do a quick recap of your last novel and where your characters stand as we start looking into the future. Spoiler alert. You should do it first. We should do I should do it first. That's true. You did. You okay. Okay. <laughs> it was a dragon that killed Drift. <laughs> okay. Before I before I go to Mike, what, what's tyranny of dragons? <laughs> no, I, I um, I found when I found out about the storyline, I was already well into um, the Rise of the King, but it fit. It's another one of those. Sometimes when you're writing, and, and Ed and Aaron will certainly attest to this because it happened at our summits. When you're writing, sometimes things just weirdly happen that fall into place. I'm thinking of year names. Remember that the whole year name thing? I that, wasn't there for that because I had a baby. That's right, you had a baby. Ed remembers it. Yes. And all the names just fall into place, and you go, "How is this happening? It's it's bizarre." So for me. Um, as it happened, I had dragons in the book, and that became a subplot to uh, not really Night of the Hunter, but Rise of the King, and the one that's coming out next March, which I guess I can say now because it's on Amazon, is uh, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf. And, the, and there were dragons, and there'd be dragons. So it, it fit right in, and what happened is the whole storyline of Tyranny of Dragons became kind of a backstory in my book. And it's one of the reasons why a certain spider queen is really not in a good mood right now. <laughs> and the only thing I'll tell you is there was one scene in the book with um, Tiago, Banray, Gromf Banray, the Archmage, and Jarl Axel. And Tiago had just ridden a dragon. And he's like, I just rode a dragon! You know, because he was all upset because Gromf was telling him what he had to do. And he wanted to hear, I just rode a dragon! And Gromf looked at him and said, I've eaten a dragon. <laughs> and, in the back, and in the back, Jarl Axel thought but didn't say... I've slept with a dragon. <laughs> and that's the only spoiler I'm giving. I want to drink that. Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf? That's a good ale. It would be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Somebody call Scotty's quick. Brutal hangover, though. Then your book 
oh. chronologically in oh, the Sundry okay. came next. Um, so in my book, um, Farida finds out she's the chosen of Asmodeus and um, that a lot of unpleasant people are are looking for her and that she has these new weird powers and then I ship them off to Cormier. <laughs> um, which in, in retrospect was a that was a big project. But it was fun. Um, I also was well into it when uh, the Charity Dragon storyline came up and I also ended up having um, a sort of surprising tie-in while we were talking. I think it's too spoilery, but while we were talking about it, um, Ed mentioned some, something about Tiamat, um, whatever she devours is permanently destroyed. And I'm like, if, you know, if Tiamat's been relocated to the Nine Hells, that's a really nice way to get rid of stuff. <laughs> or if you don't want the God of Sin to find something. Um, so I got to, you know, Tiamat has a little cameo uh, in Fire in the Blood. Um, the <laughs> ultimate garburator. <laughs> taking stuff I was thinking she's an editor. Nice. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <clears throat> and let's see. I wrote the Herald, and I, I, I need direction from my how spoilery can I be at this oh. point? Spoilery of Tyranny of Dragons? Or? No, of of it's what's only in two the months old. You can, you can be very spoiled. It's only two months old. Okay, so who, who here has read Okay. Let let me let me be not very spoilery then, because okay. The Sundering the six books of the Sundering, the last one is the Herald. Um, you've probably all seen the cover with this guy, old guy with a beard and the staff and the pointed hat and the robes walking towards you. Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, I would remind everybody who thinks that Elminster's model on me that I was six years old. <laughs> and, he looked, and he looked just like this. <laughs> yeah. And the, the Herald sort of wraps up the Sundering Without it wraps it up as a publishing thing. It doesn't wrap up the event in the world because it doesn't have nice, clear beginnings and endings. It rumbles and fades and so on. But one of the things that um, one of the things in the Herald is who's the Herald, and you go, oh yeah, Elminster's the Herald. Well, you might think that by looking at the cover, and sure enough, Elminster is the Herald for part of it. But the whole point of that lovely little prophecy. Is there are all sorts of different characters as the book progresses? Go, oh, I'm the Herald, and my wife is too. No, and uh, that goes all the way through the book as various people become what could be the Herald, because the prophecy is like most prophecies, is as cryptic as hell. So you can misinterpret it, and you can willfully misinterpret it if you're caught up in this, and lots of characters do. And you know that the final book in a fantasy series has to have you know, Gotterdambarong um, in it with, uh, you know, castles blowing up and cities falling from the sky and wizards uh, losing their underwear and all the stuff you want to see in the, the final climactic scene. So I put all that stuff in and I don't want to be specific about the events in the novel, but certain people who have read it are, oh, you killed off so-and-so, oh, you killed me. Well, I would remind them that Narrators are unreliable in the realms. <laughs> the fog of battle um, clouds and confuses lots of minds, particularly when they're being hit by high-level spells and bleeding in all directions. And they report what they saw. 
what that really happened will only become clearer later down the road in other fiction. That do not jump to over hasty conclusions, because a jump to a hasty conclusion is usually a jump off a cliff. And you will notice one thing post the Herald, in that everybody who was, all the gods who were like um, muscling up was chosen. So everybody and their cow was a chosen. Um, that's starting to fade away now. For one thing, certain deities thought that this was a way of reordering the power balance. Hey, I got more chosen than you. If I kill your chosen, I become more powerful. You become less powerful. <laughs> and lots of chosen got killed, devoured, eaten, melted, whatever. So suddenly, it became a less cool thing to be a chosen. Hi, I'm a chosen. Hi, I'm a target. You know. <laughs> so you'll see less and less of that. And that's it for me, for the Herald, for now, unless you guys ask questions later, because I don't want to ruin it for anybody who's read it. A lot of, you know, it's like a lot of things. The big battle scenes where there's lots of noise and smoke and fire and flame and all sorts of stuff, and that's the Herald. Yeah, a lot of what we did, a lot of what's happened in the realms now that Sundering is common is gone, uh, we talked about how we're sort of changing how we approach the realms in terms of storytelling. I kind of like to think about, if you think of uh, World War II as a big global event, the Sundering was kind of like our World War II. There was literally a war, a big war. Uh, but now things have kind of settled down, but they're not settled. They're just sort of arranged now in a certain way. There's now a balance of power that can shift. The gods have kind of been pushed back from the world. There's now more opportunities for individuals to have a bigger role, plus the opportunities for evil, new evils to come to the forefront, or old evils to reawake. And that's kind of what we find with Tyranny of Dragons, with the cult of the dragon undergoing a transformation. The old teachings of bringing back dragons as dracoliches, as the cult worshiping there's been a change in the cult. There's a change in the leadership and the interpretation of those prophecies that now the cult is allied with living dragons, serving as their tools or using the dragons as their tools as they jockey for power. And this threat now of Tiamat returning to the world. And because of the change of the Sundering, that is the kind of thing that's now starting to evolve in the world. And also future storylines that, that, that will reveal, which we can't talk about yet, but that we we're talking about in developing. And I think that's a pretty good segue. Jim talked about in the comic series that you're working on, uh, set in Baldur's Gate, right. and how that intersects with everything. Well, what's interesting is that you know, just like with you know, Ed's talking about how uh, prophecies are cryptic and things don't always go the way you expect, or people aren't always what you expect they're going to be. The cult of the dragon is not one perfect unified thing either. So uh, Baldur's Gate will end up being affected by some sort of splinter elements of the cult of the dragon. And in the midst of that, what seems like you know a, a splintered group of the Cult of the Dragon trying to set up their own schemes within Baldur's Gate, that will be, um, they come up against sort of the chaos that spins out of Minsk's return to the city and some of the echoes of the, the material from the video game. So you've got stuff that happened over 100 years earlier is sort of Minsk 
barely knows what's going on in the you know normal timeline if he was wandering around taking advice from uh, his hamster of great wisdom. But now he's vaulted, I don't want to say quite how, the first issue will explain how he's vaulted 100 years into the future, and now he's confused, but he knows that there's evil, and he knows that he must stop it, and he's going to go in there, you know, all, metaphorically, all guns a-blazing, basically, to take this stuff down. And his effect will sort of ripple outwards throughout the city, because he is the beloved ranger of legend, you know, a hundred years have passed, and although he was this brain-addled ranger, as far as people are concerned, his legend was pretty pure. You know, a story gets told, and a story gets told, and it's like a photocopy of a photocopy, until there's a statue put up of this guy, and they say, he was perfect in every way, and he was the ultimate hero, and he did all these incredible things, and he had this powerful hamster, you know, this and all this stuff, and now the reality of him sort of having to live up to his own legend, or not, and people not even necessarily believing that it's him, because how could someone be so ridiculous when he's supposed to be so heroic. And so you've got this cool past and present element going on, and I wanted to create a story that a brand new reader, if you just picked up 5th edition, and you're like, what is D&D about? And to me as a player growing up, D&D was about fun, seat of your pants, kind of earthy action. And if the, you know, something... Faffer and the Grey Mouse are kind of elements of, of, you know, playing in those urban kind of spaces and cutthroats and double crossing and things like that and playing with that but with that fun element that you have around the table but it also ties into the tyranny of dragons and so we're able to bring some of those echoes into play but it's a small enough story that if you're a brand new reader or you're not a regular comic reader or you maybe have never even played the video games you can still get something fun out of it and so trying to take all those different elements and make it both new reader friendly but if you if you're reading tyranny of dragons and if you're playing through the stuff you're going to appreciate all the layers that we're putting into it. It's been a great challenge, but I'm loving it. It's been a real thrill. Is is Buol gray and shriveled? I can't. I can't explain how we do it. You got to read. You got to read the first issue. Because I was thinking you could have him in a, like a stuffed boo. <laughs> Go for the eyes, boo. And he's <laughs> it. It's a little decrepit thing crawling along the ground, right? Zombie hamsters. Right. The one That'll be the next. Is the tyranny of the zombie hamsters? Yeah. Tyranny, tyranny, tyranny. <laughs> next year's. From there, I love Minsk. Yeah, I, I want it. Oh, I um, love Minsk. Stuff, stuff happens. I love Minsk. It's good. Oh, good. Uh, writing his dialogue has been a pure joy. I bet. Uh, sometimes I'll read. When you're doing comic dialogue, I, well, I guess any dialogue, I don't know about you guys, I read dialogue out loud. Like, I yeah. want to hear it back. Mm-hmm. And your, my you wife better. thinks I'm a little crazy because I'm yelling lines from. I don't just want to, you know, cut and paste lines from the video game, but I want it to sound like Minsk. So I'm just yelling these. Brain addled lines. My wife's just like, that's my guy. You know? <laughs> Dave Sutherland used to say, if you want to scare your family members, yeah, go into the bathroom in front of a mirror and go. <laughs> oh, just start to, to try and get the yeah. you know, what happens when a spell or a tentacle wraps around your neck. That's when your family member will walk into the bathroom and then you're going. Yeah! I, 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 it's not when you're running through the house swinging two scimitars around. <laughs> I, I did a, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, I did a Batman story, and it, it's got uh, Harley Quinn in it, and I was mm-hmm. trying to get her cadence, she's got this very particular way of speaking, and so I would be sitting around doing these, like, my wife's walking by, and I'm like, oh, Batsy, you're so kooky, you know, and stuff like that, she's just like, oh my god, <laughs> he's getting paid for this, yeah. <laughs> 
It's a dream job. It is a dream job. <laughs> I get to play in this gigantic, amazing uh, playground that you that you built and uh, that I have enjoyed for many, many years. It's an absolute thrill. So I want to touch on that a little bit because if you if you see the player's handbook, the um, we we're drawing inspiration from these characters. If you read, for instance, the, the Tiefling section, we have dialogue when Aaron's you know Farida as a character. Uh, do you guys maybe want to talk a little about D and D? Maybe start with Aaron and, and Farida and how like did the concept of the warlock character class and the Tiefling race like what? How much did that influence when you were working on your stories, and how much? And I know for us as game designers, there's definitely a backward influence. So. I really hope you didn't use the ranger like him as the <laughs> ultimate ranger. <laughs> All rangers are just like this. <laughs> but, but there are things like when we design a gift, which we obviously need. You have to be able to do a wield scimitars, no questions asked, because that's one of our iconic characters, and it would be. And a weird D&D, and here's Driss, and you can't He has to stop doing that now. Yeah, well, <laughs> most of them, yeah. Try it. I, I, I got one for that. It's, yeah. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I say is going to match up to that. Um, no, Farida actually was my character in a Forgotten Realms campaign, um, but she was from, like, a really different... She was a tiefling warlock, um, but she was a fae pact. Um, she was a, just a different character, but she was a tiefling warlock with a twin sister. Um, and so when it came time to what Brimstone Angels was originally supposed to fit into a series called The Plain Touch that was then broken up into separate, separate books. And so when it was time for the Tiefling book, I had kind of thought, you know, if you took this and you tweaked it, you made her younger and you made her an infernal pact warlock and you changed her sister and suddenly it's another character. Um, and, and then I grabbed the editor and I dragged her into a room and I said, I really want to pitch this book to you. Um, and fortunately for me, it was it was good. That's um, the secret. You grab the editor. Oh yeah! Right. <laughs> Don't teach them all those bad habits yet. Susan, my editor, she knows um, jujitsu. <laughs> oh, she's Do it tough. Gently. Yes. And don't sneak up on her. Learn that lesson. Um, so did I. <laughs> And then, you know, as you, you work with this stuff, you, you know, you, you, I think that the most important thing is to respect the rules and to kind yeah. of honor the feeling of them, and, but not necessarily to port them over in the same, I mean, in the same way you wouldn't port things straight back over, because what works in a novel is not necessarily, or, or in a comic book, is not necessarily what works in the game and what's best for the game, not necessarily what's best for the novel. So, you know, there's places like, Farida um, does a spell that's basically... Um, a really cheaty misty step from fourth edition um, where she can like teleport a short distance um, because that suited her like the way she fought which was very nervous and jumpy and, and trying to get out of the way um, if you could do that in a game you would be the worst because you'd just be bouncing all over the place because your character probably wouldn't be going oh god I don't really want to be in this fight right now and I don't really want to be using these powers um, but for her it really suited and to, so for me to make a, an in-world explanation for that particular power to be hers worked but it would be so bad in the game we, we kind of think of the novel like when, when, when someone's writing a story they're kind of both player and DM so you are allowed to host rule and that's cool because everyone yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But if I had her do something that was completely yeah, out of line with yeah. the, the feel of it, the, with, the, yeah. with, the, with, the, with the power, <laughs> she suddenly ran a Thoris and summoned one, and that was the end. That would suck because she's you know not that powerful, and that wouldn't feel warlocky, and it wouldn't feel like D and D. Flock of Tarasks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there we go. That's much better. Yeah. Get on that. Flock of Tarasks. <laughs> 
yeah. block the terrace. Yeah. So in, in general, do you guys find that like something you work around does it inspire interesting storytelling? Or yeah. Kind of... Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> now I got two on this. Um, when I was writing, I think it was Neverwinter. It was one of the earlier Neverwinter books. I actually tried to do a battle scene in fourth edition and be true to it, like with the cards, like the way they would be able to do it. And damn near killed me. Um, it was Ephron and Barabbas the Grey in the forest fighting some Ashmedae zealots. And, oh my lord. Um, that was the only time I tried it. But the, the game, you cheat all the time. You have to, because otherwise it's not going to work. I mean, so like when I was doing Catterley, for example, in the Cleric Quintet... He was really supposed to be a psionicist. But you see, that I started writing those books, and, and TSR, who then owned D&D, came out with second edition. And they said, well, there are, there are no more psionicists at this point, so he can't be a psionicist. And I said, well, okay, what do I do now? And they said, make him a cleric. I'm like, a cleric. Cleric's the last guy at the table who says, hey, I want to play. What can I be? You're the cleric. Shut up, sit down, and heal me. Um, so I made him a cleric. And there were no, the other thing that happened, there were no more monks. And so I made Danica a fighting cleric. She's a monk. And then the other thing that happened is because of the old Mothers Against D&D and all that garbage, they took assassins out of the game. So I was sitting home one day, and Jeff Grubb, who was then the coordinator of the realms, called me up, and he said, Bob! And this was actually before I even wrote the cleric deck. This was when I was writing the Dark Elf trilogy, when they were just going to second edition. I was writing Homeland. I was right, just going, and he said, Bob, how are you going to kill Artemis and Trary? What are you talking about? I'm writing Homeland. This is 80 years before he's born. And they're like, no, you've got to kill Artemis and Trary. But we're going to let you do it because we think he's a cool character, so we're going to let you kill him. I'm like, he can't be in the book. He's not born. You want me to kill his grandparents? What? And they, they're, like, they're like, no. And I'm like, what are we doing? I'm not killing Adamus and Trary. He's kind of cool. I might go back to him. And he's like, no, you've got to kill him. And I'm why do I got to kill Adamus and Trary? And he says, because, you know, there are no more assassins in the game. So and I was like, oh. I'm not killing Adamus and Trary. And we got in this huge fight back and forth for like 20 minutes screaming at each other. And finally I just said, I'm not killing him. I don't understand why I have to kill him. He goes, you have to kill him because all the assassins are getting their souls sucked up by an evil god. And if you don't kill him, that's what's going to happen to him because there are no more assassins in the game. And so I paused and I said, he's not an assassin. And Jeff said, what? He said, he's a fighter thief who takes money to kill people. <laughs> And Jeff said, we could do that. <laughs> but it, it's hard because, you know, and the, the other thing is that what the readers don't understand is that you've got nine different things going on at once, right? So they're changing things over here, and you're in the middle of a book that's coming out after the game product because they have a short lead time typically. And they're like, well, you know, uh, how can Narbondel work? There's no infravision. Well, it used to work. <laughs> but... It, it generally, it's all, it's all based on communication, and mm -hmm. then it doesn't work anyway, but yeah. you cheat. <laughs> At least we know it doesn't work. Like, right. yeah, Retrofit is not a yeah. bad word. I found that when writing Spellfire, because there was the, <coughs> oh, Ed, it'll be really cool. You can do something that the gamers can take out of the novel if they hate fiction. Like, you can put in all the spells. Put in the, describe the casting of a spell. 
the, the somatic the material components, give the full incant incantation, we'll, we'll center it, we'll put it in italics, and we'll run it for 13 pages, you know, and do the whole thing. And so I said, that's cool, I'll do that. So I was doing all the incantations for Fireball and everything, and a few of them survived. And then it got into the editing, and it went up the chain, and they got these, no, heavens no, we'll have this stuff yelled out in every church in the nation. No. <laughs> oh, I can imagine what you were writing. Oh, Well, no, because they told me to do it. And I thought, well, this will be something if you're a gamer, you don't really like to, to read fiction. You could at least go, oh, well, it was worth buying because I got this, this, and this. And I can now say it at the gaming table and it will be really cool. And he's described exactly how they do it. So no more arguments about that. No, you have to go, you have to do this. So if your hands are tied, you can't do it. You know, because it'll all everything will be described, and not only did it take eight pages to describe the casting of a spell in the middle of a combat sequence, but of course, halfway through, the editor said, uh, "We've got some problems here. They all have to come out." That's cool. Now your book is twenty thousand words too short. <laughs> so I mean, it's always a problem, and it's always been a problem. And at, right then, I decided, no, what I should do in the novel is give you the backstory and the hints, the adventure hooks, that a dungeon master reading it can go, oh, but they never took care of the, that rumor about the dragons underneath the castle. Oh, no, he's moved on three books. Good. I can use that. So you're leaving that. And the other thing you're doing is, instead of saying, well, as a gnome illusionist, he has these hit dice and this and that, because that's going to change from edition to edition. But you can put in, you can put in his motivations, how you would get trained, what you would feel like, how that would fit in socially. How would you be accepted? Are there special clubs? Um, are there are there orders, um, knightly orders, or, or monastic orders, or just a, a special regard in the local temple? Well, what do the local temples do? Like, how do you? You don't have a postal system. That's okay. The temples send messengers on their own business, and for a little fee, they'll take your little written message. But, you know, if you send money with it and think it's going to be private, ah, ah, every priest along the way is going to read it because they need to know why. Why is this person communicating this? You know, it could be of use to us. You know, so you build that whole thing into the novel, and then people go, oh, that's the stuff they didn't cover in the rules. Oh, okay, this society or this country or this settlement makes sense now. Cool. And so that's what the books are for. And that's what's really interesting is it's almost, it's not the opposite, but it's so different than what I'm doing with the comic. Because the comic is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you guys are able to go so in-depth with the prose and you're able to, people's internal monologues and their motivations and their emotional shift. And I'm describing visually to the artist, Max Dunbar, who's doing a phenomenal job, here's what we need to see and mm -hmm. here's a visual thing so when I was laying out the outline for um, for our first storyline Legends of Baldur's Gate it was really about what are the big set pieces visual set pieces where can we have this action take place because it's got to be a visual component rather than an internal one so we opened the comic with an action scene it's literally first page chase mm -hmm. because I want to bring you into this place and I want to show you something that you haven't seen before and I think that that's what makes it yeah. really exciting is you're able to bring uh, you know a visual component to people and show yes. them this yes. is how the action can look or this is how you can make your uh, combat more dynamic that rolling those dice isn't just a, you know it's not the Final Fantasy game where someone goes uh, 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 bup, 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 
numbers, that, that, that numbers, you know what I mean? Like I want people <laughs> jumping over tables or crashing through windows or pushing each other down rooftops, you know, falling on balconies and all these really cool things. That's the way the combat should feel to me, or that's the way I think that D&D and really exciting sword and sorcery fantasy combat should look. And so what can we do to inject that into, you know, the visuals and take what seems to be simple spell casting or simple sword play and make it as exciting and interesting as possible. And, you know, playing the fifth edition, I was really, that simple mechanic of the advantage, disadvantage, I just think because it's so flexible, you can just say, well, because you're crashing out a window, you're at a disadvantage or, you know, what it sounds, it's so flexible to just throw that into the mix. And even when I was, uh, you know, running some sample games of, of fifth ed with my friends, just to get them going. And they were asking me why I had the rules early and I had to go, I can't tell you, but let's play a game. You know? But, uh, yeah. but it, you know, um, it, it's been a really uh, cool experience being trying to think visually about Dungeons and & Dragons and trying to give it something. And when we were talking about story elements, they sent me the Tyranny of Dragons sort of overplot. And I said, okay, this is all incredible, epic, amazing stuff. But there's no way you can encompass all that into a comic story. There's way too many characters. Yeah. There's way too many things. Yeah. There's an unholy amount of, of inside baseball. And I think it's all very cool. But what if we zero in on this element of it and make a really cool, tight-knit, you know, action-packed story that's going to be visual, that's going to be engaging, and bring a new player or a longtime fan on board and hopefully inspire them? To you bring, run you bring up a really great point there because I think one of the jobs when you're working in a shared world and, you know, there's so many moving parts, is that there are going to be the bigger stories that are going to be developed at summits in-house, right? And you're going to have ten people sitting around the table playing off each other like we do at the author summits and, and the game summits. But as one thing I've done for all these years is I've found corners to hide in. Yeah. So, like, there was no Icewind Dale. I made up Icewind Dale. And the things that happen in Icewind Dale, they don't know in Calumport. They don't know and they don't care. They don't even know in Luskin half the time, and it's right next door through the mountains, right? There was no spirit soaring. I made up spirit soaring, and I hid away again. There was no men's barons on. They said, we want you to do the Drow in the Realms. And I said, okay, I've got the Fiend Folio entrance. I've got the old Gygax modules. What else? And they said, that's all we got. <laughs> and, okay, so what do I do? And they said, you carte blanche. You get to make men's barons on. And so I did. And But by staying out of the way... It's almost worked out in a way that they react to me instead of the other way because I'll do something in the books and then, lo and behold, the drow become a player character class and or something, and yeah. or they can you know they can be rangers or whatever you know. So, other, this is probably isn't true for Ed because he made the realm, so he blows things up. <laughs> but I don't, I can't blow up water deep, so I hide in the corner in the shadows in an alley in water deep, and. Have people kill each other instead. Well, absolutely. And that's like with the Cult of the Dragons. You know, there's the main sort of plot of that. And then I said, but there's splinter elements. Like, there's got to be infighting. They can't just all be lockstep doing the same things all the way through. And those power struggles, what if someone's breaking off and they're saying, oh, you think you can do this? Well, I'm going to do it this way. And you guys were really excited about that, this idea of showing the complexity of the villainy, that it's not just one sort of homogenized evil rolling over the yeah. world, that there's all yeah. sorts of power struggles and people even fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, I noticed, I noticed that when I was writing that Forgotten Realms comic, I yeah. thought, oh, so how do I avoid 
eight pages of info dump to right. start the comic. Right. And so I, I did the chase scene in the fight. You need, you know? you need a so visual. You're look, yeah, plug. you're looking over the shoulder of just a very few characters. They're caught in the middle of something. Right. What the hell's going on? Well, they also are saying, what the hell's going on? So you learn along with them. And then when you start to see the villains, all the villains are double-crossing each other and working across purposes. Yeah. And you just sort of show moments of that like yeah. you happen your eyeball happens to be in the right place to see this and you move on leaving right. the leaving the reader going what 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 the hell get back there no there's this fight going on over here you just sort of carry them along because you have editors comic book editors who said uh ed um you can't have 13 panels on a page <laughs> <laughs> and four upon i would say how old are you again? No. I got 60,000 comic books at home. You can too. Here is you know, Steve Jack Dicko, Kirby. Yeah, Here is Steve. Here is Steve. Yeah, and you can do it like this. And he goes, yeah. Well, you can, but our artists can't draw that. Yeah. Um, the so, sensibilities have really changed yeah. in terms of the aesthetic. And, and I go, sure. Oh, so what you're really telling me is fewer dialogue balloons per page. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I was going to get around to telling you. Could they just talk less and kill each other more? Oh, sure. No that's so more instead, like a tabletop game yeah. anyway. So I, I got to put in a lot of scenes where the guy goes, but don't forget, you have to bring the torso or... <laughs> so it's seat after seat of, nice. oh, don't forget. People's sentence is getting The poison off. is in the... <laughs> The, the, yeah, the, and it, this all goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about unreliable narrator, right? Because the thing you have to understand is if, if you go back to the realms and, and the, the setting of the realms, even though you have the occasional teleport going around, the wizards, they don't, they're not forthcoming with everything. You don't have television. You don't have telephones. So the people don't know what's going on a lot of times. And so one of the things that I try to do, because, again, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of off to the side with the stories. One of the things I try to do is... I try to, when I'm telling a story that's set in a bigger story like The Sundering or Tyranny of Dragons, when I had the whole thing going on with the dragons in my book, they hint at it. Yeah. But they don't really know what's going on, so they're not going to tell you what's going on. So you can't have characters singing and steepling their fingers. Well, as you know, yeah, we yeah, are yeah. planning to take I, over people, the world. This exactly. Is, that's right. So Paul. what they do is they hint at it and they say, oh, this is, you know, don't mind them. This is bigger than what's going on here. They're doing, they're doing something with trying to do something with so-and-so, and yeah, well, that's kind of messed up. Yeah, okay. And then go on and tell your story. And if you do it right, if it works the way it's supposed to work, what will happen is once you get to the whole four months of Tyranny of Dragons thing and you, you see it in all the different media and formats, then you think back to the book you read and you go, oh, yeah, that was in there. There was, there was some really good foreshadowing going on because that's really the job mm -hmm. of... Unless it's ex unless it's explicitly not the job, that's the job for the authors. Yeah, right. You know, unless there's things they say we really want you to show this, this, and this. Right. And when you think about news in the realms, if you live in a waystop village or hamlet along a road, news comes to you in three ways: spies, um, for want of a better term, who work for a merchant coster or who are um, part of a, uh, a faith, an organized faith, and moving. And their job is to tell a limited number of people very accurate things that aren't for public consumption. They're just passing them along. But the Harpers would do the same thing. And then everybody else who's a source of information 
your, your wandering minstrels, your caravans, the, the peddler. Well, if he comes into the tavern and how well he eats or how many free beers he gets depends on the colorful story he tells, then he's going to relate the local, local news, but it's always going to get a little exaggerated or a little tailored to his audience. Oh, I got three old veterans sitting in the bar. Their wives have gone home. I can, I can pitch it to old soldiers. Or, oh my gosh, all the women in the village are there and they all want to know what happened to their husband. Um, I'm going to say something different. But that's the way news spreads. So you can use carte blanche to twist and, you know. People want to tell the best story. They want to be the center of attention while they're telling the story. So if they're going to avoid it or... Um, they were closer to the action, yeah. yeah. Danny Oakley and Billy the Kid and all the Wild Bill Hickok. Remember those? They did all yeah. the periodicals back, and these people were like huge, huge, much larger than life. And then you watch the History Channel special, and you find out, well, he was just a little dirtbag after yeah. all. <laughs> I've got in um, in Baldur's Gate. There's a character called the Fetcher, who's this information monger, and he's in the uh, Undercellar, I think. It's- Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, underseller. So. Mm-hmm. And so he's brokering between the upper city and the lower city, and he becomes this sort of funnel of information. And he's feeding information to different factions to get them either in conflict with each other or to benefit from both sides of it. And so he becomes, he's not a main character, but he's a touchstone for all these different characters interacting with each other. He becomes sort of the crossroads between the upper city and the lower city for our, our main cast. And I found that really useful because he would give people information, and I want to make it clear that he wasn't necessarily telling the truth, so I show a scene where he's telling someone something, and I'm like, God, the reader's going to think that that's the real thing, but then the next scene, someone else comes, and he tells them something very different about the exact same thing, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, now you get it. You get that this guy's just going to play everybody every way, and I think that that's a really fun element where you're able to show that it, how ambiguous this stuff can be in the right, you know, in the right way. Do you guys feel like, Bob, you mentioned you kind of moving to the corners and kind of staying in the spotlight with the internet as kind of like with, with D&D, with 40-year history and the realms of this long history, are you kind of running out of corners or do you kind of feel like there's always that possibility to... No, there's always another corner to go into. I, it, it's, um, I'm very good at playing dumb. <laughs> it comes naturally. Um, so my story is so centered on the characters and the journey of the characters that it's really hard for me to get myself into a corner that's realms affecting. And as long as it's not realms affecting, they let me get away with a lot. And there's another thing, too. You can view the realms as an onion. Infinite layers of intrigue. And nobody wants all those layers explained down to the last. Because if you're playing at the gaming table... You as a dungeon master want the freedom to change things. You as a player don't want no mystery, no surprises because you happen to read it all. You you want there to be stuff to discover. And so as a and as an editor, you're not gonna let a novelist go, okay, and under this is this layer, under this is this layer, and under this, and you're not gonna let a game designer is not gonna be allowed to do that too, because the days of okay, we'll publish forty six hardcover books. One every two weeks, and then you can get all the intrigue in this town right. finished. Right. You know, so but but in your novels, while they're doing something else, you can hint at the existence of this layer, hint at the existence of that layer, leaving it for everybody to play with in their minds, play with it at their gaming table, play with it in their own um, using the realms the way they see fit. 
but you're always reminding people it's there, which means, oh, we don't want to do Waterdeep again. You know, we're always in Waterdeep, and every goddamn product they bring out is Waterdeep again. Well, we know it all. No, you don't. Because You'll never know it all, and you shouldn't know yeah, it all. You, yeah. I think that's one of the great things yeah. about Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, I'm going to sound a little corny here, but Dungeons & Dragons made me a storyteller. When I was a kid, my older brother and cousins were playing D&D. I was 8 years old, and they were uh, 11 and 12. You know, older, mature. <laughs> And But it was a big deal for me. Every time I would come around my initiative order, I had a chance to speak up and say something. And if I entertained them, I would be on their equal footing. Or I got to roll my dice and my dice were just as good as their dice. Probably better. And so uh, it was my way of making characters and, and creating scenarios and making everyone remember what I did every single turn, every single scene. And that taught me about making characters and about building things. And I think that that's what's great about D&D is your input as players and dungeon masters is what makes the game and what makes the stories. And if we were to, to wipe it all out, if we were to fill in every single corner and expose every bit of light on every single aspect of it, then that's not actually Dungeons and Dragons. That's just like a weird, you might as well have stereo instructions or something like, well, you went to, your, this, to this place, so here's a map and every single encounter you could ever do, like it's just a series of charts. And no matter what you do in a video game, and video games can be great, no matter what you do in any other medium, d and is unique because it's our minds and our creativity that allows every option and every choice. It's the choose-your-own-adventure with every choice, you know? Uh, so I just have a quick question for the audience. Yeah. The, so if you guys remember some of the old, the first edition of Forgotten Realms source, source books, like Moonshade, so that was Doug Niles or Moonshade. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of the world detail, even in the RPG books, was presented like fiction. I think the Moonshade was an Elminster traveling, or no, um, it was Elminster. No. Yeah, it was one of the, in FR2. It was Flamster. Yeah. It was a like, travel log of, I'm in Moonshade, here's what I've seen. Do you guys, of, I mean, who here plays the RPG? So I give a sense. <laughs> Well, Wait, you guys played D&D? Yeah. That's crazy. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good market share here at Gen Con. <laughs> They're representative of the general population. <laughs> so, do you guys as readers, though, do you, would you have, do you think presenting our, uh, the RPG books that way, more narratively, where you might have an unreliable narrator, is that more appealing to you, or do you feel that, that raise your hand after you agree? Yes. Is that what you I, I would Polo argue. rides again. <laughs> I would argue. I would argue that of all the game products, well, for me personally, it's not even an argument because I'm the argument myself. For me personally, of all the game products that I've ever opened up on a pen and paper game, the the one that stood out the most to me was the gray box set of Forgotten Realms. But not by, because of what was in there, but because of what wasn't. Or the potential. There was one paragraph about the town of Longsaddle and an eccentric family of wizards called the Harples who lived in the <laughs> Ivy Mansion. And when I got to write that in Streams of Silver, you remember that phone call. Mm -hmm. I got to write it. I got, you know, in, the, in Streams of Silver, when they went through there and they found the one who turned himself into a statue because he had the spell to turn himself back, not even realizing that once he was a statue, he couldn't cast the spell. <laughs> and, you know, the bridge where you walk under it instead of on top of it. And I just, it just the, the, the invisible fence, you had to wipe the birds off every morning, that type of thing. Um, it was just so much fun. And I remember I was, when I was reading that to Ed and the two of us were just howling, laughing, and it was like, those, that book was so full of inspiration and just one paragraph here and one paragraph there without overwhelming you. 
And then I remember as it got on and we went into second edition and there were so many products coming out, so many products. And even the modules, you had to like have this entire backstory down to the last detail before you even started playing the module. And I, I never liked that. I liked the ones that just give me enough to inspire me to play or write. And, and there was that ongoing battle between, oh no, let's do another Waterdeep product because they're always popular, they always sell. And me going... Yeah, but we keep going back to the same place. I've got this whole map right. to cover. Right. When do we get to do this and this and I this? I think there's different types. Of, there's some yeah. people who, I, I don't know that they're afraid, but they want everything codified because then it will be canon or then they'll, mm -hmm. they're doing it right. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. as much as you want to do it right or pay proper tribute to the, the world that you're playing in, you also have to understand that it's okay, if the people at the table are having a good time, you're, you're doing mm -hmm. it right. Mm -hmm. You're telling a great story. You're having fun. Yep. You're playing with your friends, and you're entertaining. You're building a story. Now, obviously, we've got editors, and we've got people giving us input, and it's important that it all presents a certain you know, branding, but I think it's important that we're able to inject some of ourselves into it. Like you said, yeah. you get to come up with something fun. You get to, you know, you, you said that one of your characters worked their way into it. I was so nervous because as Minsk is obviously one of the main characters, but there are a couple other, you know, characters joining the party. And I was coming up with them and everything in my power to not inject one of my own characters. Like, well, that's not what a professional would do. No, I would never put no, one of my own characters into like, a... Pro and then I go, you know what? That's, that's kind of bullshit. Like, you can... We make characters and we tell stories all the time. As and long it, as you take that, and you, as long as it makes the, the story strong. The story I'm telling, right? You. Is it you're strong? You're not afraid to go chop that off, stick this on, right. flip this around, and and not be like, well, but in the game. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, it's like the original Dragonlance was built. You know, they yeah. did those gaming sessions, and a bunch of those really evocative moments came from the gaming table because it added these unique spins on characters that they'd never thought about before. Right. And and although. Bob's point stands, and I've heard it from a lot of people, that the old gray box was magic because of the space yeah. and the breathing space you had. As the guy who was there writing it, filtered through Jeff Grubb killed you. and um, Karen Boomgarden, yeah. um, I was sending by FedEx these typed thingies, and Jeff would say, Hey, Ed! We need stuff on, on people who've gone missing in the realms. Famous people who've gone missing. Okay. Hey, Ed, we need something on the, the, the coinage, the currency. Okay. And, 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 and there were something like, I think, 19... I called them all a look at the Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. I'm and sure it was more high-tech than this, but I just imagine this old typewriter. And no, it was, no, it was not more no. high-tech than this. It, it was typewriter. It was an Underwood, and I was flipping the thing. And they were like 50 and than 60 pages You have no long. idea. And then are there big piles of books leaning over near mm -hmm. you? Are they falling? You have no idea. And you have no idea. <laughs> because the floor was starting to give way in my study, right. literally, and... The stack of books I'd put downstairs what else are you we to prop Canada? it up. You know, so I, the, the plaster ceiling was going. Oh so I, all, I put most of the books that I had down in the living room, I put up underneath. And, and then I was hammering in little wedges to hold the ceiling up to, to keep it from falling through. But in that room, I recently moved a bunch of stuff in order to uh, tidy up and lighten the load and the original you see I had to keep photocopies of everything I'd frantically go to the library where I worked and photocopy each package it's all digitized now yeah because if FedEx had lost a package right. and it was the only copy 
that was it. So everything was photocopied. And so so I would then go to Ikea and buy these little cut corner files, you know, the little things that hold your, and I put the manila file folders of the next thingy in it. And what went into the old gray box Mm -hmm. is this much linear feet of eight and a half by 11 papers typed on one side and photocopied with my little squinchy Jeff, I really mean that this in between. Okay, and then of course, what Karen would do is cry. <laughs> Paper is like this; it is not elastic. It cannot bulge. I can't put anything else in. I'd say, you Americans, you go down to six-point type, <laughs> and, and she'd say. Nobody publishes that. I'd say, bullshit. I have 82 saint paperbacks published in wartime at home. You can see through the pages, both sides, and the type is like that. It's just, and it's not wartime. We don't have a paper shortage. I'd say, then make we don't have a larger. Make them bigger. Yeah. Give me thicker books. Every <laughs> writer in yeah. the early realms yeah. had the moment on the phone. Yes. This was before cell phones. He actually had a phone. <laughs> where the editor said, we're sending you Ed's original. Yeah. And that's the last word the writer heard because they just went. <laughs> they sent me Ed's original maps of the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> Ed's original maps, of the, they were not numbered. There was no key. Oh, they didn't send you the key? They were, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, don't lie. No, no. They, they, were, they were eight and a half by 11 papers stacked about that high. Yes. And some of them had a line with a tree, maybe a mountain. That was it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and when I sent those 55 pages of the world map, oh my God, I laid them all out on the floor of my number two cottage, my workshop cottage. Oh, I, yep. And I crawled up into the crawl space, laid on my tummy, and took photographs with an Instamatic. This is how low tech, yeah, Instamatic camera, with a little turning flash cube to take photographs of them in case. And then when I sent them, they all had a. Um, uh, you should have received it. They must have been absolute saddest to ever sent that. Oh, they yeah. all had a little matching guide. And Waterdeep was even worse because f- photocopiers warp and distort the edges of what they photocopy. Wow. So if you photocopy half a building, it won't match up with the next photocopy. They'll be just out. So being as I'd drawn Waterdeep, so a, say a brownstone apartment, a three-story brownstone rectangular apartment, was big enough for an Airfix 176 figurine to fit in. So you say the patrol is in here. The party of adventurers is in here. Oh, they're together. <laughs> uh, so I had drawn it at that scale. So that meant I had to photocopy, photocopy. The ladies at the library would love it. They'd come in, and I'd be up on the photocopier, like a, you know, one of those guys trying to take photo, photocopies of his root parts of his anatomy and send them to people. Uh, I'd be doing this because I was... <laughs> because I wanted all of them. Ma- and then there was a matching guide that I drew, and it took me about two hours, where I draw little rectangles overlapping each other so that all of the joins that you saw in the end occurred during a street. And you had at least one sheet that had every single building not cut by the edge of a sheet. So the Waterdeep original map is 187 pages of 
35 by... Computers right now. No, Aaron, it was so bad. I, when, I, when I got the... When they asked me if I would audition for the realms back in 1987, the only thing they had printed at the time was the Doug Niles book, Dark mm-hmm. Rock, yeah. Rock Moonshine. Yeah. So they sent me that. If you look at the original, all it has is the Moonshine Isles, right? Yes. So I thought the Moonshine Isles were the Forgotten Realms. And so I came up with my okay. storyline, and they were like, no, no, we don't want you on the moonshades. And I'm, I'm looking at the map, and I'm like, do you want me in the water? And, he went, and they're like, oh, we didn't send you Ed's original maps. <laughs> now, at this time in my life, I'm working as a financial analyst for the controller for Genrad, General Radio. And he comes up to my I – I had gotten the, bo- the box had arrived, and I'm like, I'm doomed. What is this, right? And he said, um, we're going to lunch. You're coming? I'm like, no, i got too much work to do. And the minute he and the president of, the, of the, the company and the head of the service department left, as soon as I heard the door close, I pushed all my furniture out into the hall, took off my tie and tied it around my head like a bandana, right? And I'm down on the floor and I'm trying to – and I, th- I finally, after about an hour, I got like two of them that look like they act the lines actually line up. And I'm like, yeah. And I hear behind me, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> And then I turned around, and the president, the controller, and the head of service took off their ties, tied them around their heads, jumped down on the floor with me, and we spent the entire day putting together the realms. And cursing it. Yeah, those were the days, man. Just, people, don't, people don't even understand, you know. People don't even remember that there was, like, no internet. <laughs> there were do you no see what gaming, do you see what you did to these people? So they, 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 no, I, I'm still fresh. I think this is all going to go okay. <laughs> I, write, I write with the Realms Wiki open on my computer. <laughs> the Realms filing cabinet was... Absolutely. Hey, now it's like, you know... Oh, wow. oh, oh how many go- people are in that town? Ah, internet search. Yeah. There, oh, look, a map! I get, yeah. That's the name of that river that I can't read on the Realms map. And there I'd be in a tiny little neighborhood library. <laughs> The old men are reading the newspapers. Nice housewives with their kitties are bringing books up to the desk. I'm running the desk alone. The phone rings. I say, good afternoon. But Banks Public Library. Can I help you? He says, just like that. Oh. Uh, well, no. Dragons don't mate like that. Um, <laughs> and then, but I'm getting deeper and deeper. And then he sends you the movie. <laughs> And I'm getting deeper and deeper into a detailed conversation with an editor who has a deadline at 3 o'clock because there's a meeting at 4 and they have to present. So they need to know everything and they're making notes. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, no, he killed him before that. No, 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 that was a rape and we can't talk about that because we don't do rape in our products. But that's obviously why there was the feud between the two families, okay? So you just hint at it without saying it. I'm looking up. All these mothers and little old ladies with their books are going... (laughs) <laughs> and I go, oh, I'll be with you just a minute. <laughs> yeah, editors always lie and tell you they have to go to a meeting. Yes, They, yes. they always do that, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Authors always lie and say, I will have that for you. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I, you were an editor, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. Push her. And we do. <laughs> I will have that for you in a week. At the, Push her there at all. The, okay. Yeah. So I'm on the phone with Mary Kirchhoff. Oh. 
Right? I, I, I thought that the Moonshine Isles were the freaking forgotten realms. I don't want to use Doug Niles' characters because they're cool and they're his. So I still want to introduce Wolfgar. I steal Dareth, the Calumshite. And he's going to introduce the hero of my book, Wolfgar. And so I write the scene Bigrin's house, right? Uh, the, the, it was a furball, then that came a verbeeg in my book because we weren't in the Moonshine anymore. So I write that. That's my sample chapter that gets me the audition for the Crystal Shard. So Mary Kirchhoff calls me up and I'm at work. It's like 1130. Um, I'm piled month-end reports around me. and She says, we got a problem. What's the problem? You can't use Dareth. I don't want to use Dareth. Yeah, you're 3,000 miles away now because we had already set it up and I made up Icewind Dale. She says, you can't use Dareth. I don't want to use Dareth. I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. All right, let me get through my month end. I'll get to work. I'll come up with somebody else. No, no, I have to go to a meeting. And I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. I look at the clock. It's 1130. I go, I won't take lunch today. I'll come up with a sidekick for Wolfgar. And she says, Bob, you don't understand. I am staring across the hall. I am late for a meeting. They are in there waiting. I am selling your book to the sales force. This is an important marketing meeting. I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And off the top of my head, I said, a black elf. They were called black elves back then. And there's a long pause, and she says, a drow. I said, now it's not a thing. Right? See, she, she, she played me like a musical <laughs> instrument. I said, yeah, a, a drow ranger. Yeah, that'll be cool. A drow ranger. Yeah, Bob can't do that in the game. I don't care. Draw a ranger. That'll be cool. Says, Nobody's ever done that before. She says, probably a reason. I went, no, no, a draw a ranger. That'll be cool. And, and she, I said, I thought you were late for a meeting. And she goes, all right, it's a sidekick character. I'll let you get away with it. What's his name? And off the top of my head, I have no idea why. I had never played him in the game. I'd never heard of him before. I said, Dritz the Warden of Damon the been on the 9,000 Men's of Baron's Island. And she said, what? I said, I don't know. And she said, can you spell that? And I said, no. She lied to me. But it sounds like maybe you should thank her for lying. Yeah. What kind of shit? My license plate is D-R-K-E-L-F. Nice. And people keep asking me, who's Dr. Kelf? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, unless you guys have anything else, I thought maybe we go to audience questions at this point. Great. Seems pretty reasonable. Sure. Oh, can I tell a quick story about how I, I met Bob last year? Because that's a funny story. <laughs> so I'm, uh, it, I can also pimp out. So I'm in on the main hall. I'm at uh, booth 1437 with Tracy Hickman, who you might have heard of. He's a guy. And uh, Howard Taylor, and we've got a booth together. And I'm just hanging out with them last year, and we're all talking up a storm. And Tracy and Laura are talking, and they go, Bobby this and Bobby that. And I go, who's Bobby? And they go, you know Bobby? I said, I know, I don't know Bobby. You know Bowery Salvatore. I said, Bobby? R-A, <laughs> Robert, Bob. Oh, Bobby. Sal I said, but when you say Bobby Salvatore, it sounds like a gangster. <laughs> And then I said, oh, That's why Lucas hired me to hit the Wookiee. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, but it, <laughs> it's good. It's good. So I saw, I saw, I said, ah, oh, you know, you say like, hey, Bobby Salvatore. Hey, yeah, man, yeah. how are you doing? I uh, write my uh, my dark elf there and uh, you yeah, know shadow yeah, melting. I did. pop out there you and did. dank you one and knock you dead. Oh, you're wearing a black t-shirt. Uh, you owe me royalties because uh, that's shadow melt. That's my guy. 
Sorry, you can't do that. So I'm doing this, and Tracy starts laughing. He thinks it's the funniest thing ever. And I keep doing this voice. I'm like, yeah, hey, you mess with me? Uh, I'm going to get a scimitar for your ass there. Come on there, bud. And I'm doing all this stuff. I've never met him. And I'm doing this voice, and they're laughing and laughing. You know, he's got a bit of an accent. I'm like, I'm like, no, not like that. No, no, he does, he does. And so we're laughing like crazy. I think this is the funniest thing. Later in the day, I'm doing a, a sketch for someone, because I started as an artist. So I'm doing a sketch for someone. All of a sudden, this someone leans over really close to me. He goes... What's that about my dark elf? <laughs> <laughs> Look over at Spots Altari right there. So, yeah, that's how I met Bobby. him. That was my, that was my first, uh, made a great first impression. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question. Okay, mine's, uh, I feel a very important question. Uh, with the introduction and the emphasis on the factions that we have now, will any of your characters or side characters be joining or? working with those factions. I have characters that already are in the Harpers, so I'm good. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Is Driss going to join the Order of the Gauntlet? I would tell <laughs> No, I don't think so. He's dead. A dragon killed him. <laughs> He's going to join the Order of the Walking Dead. Nice. Yeah, and that's actually something where I think the War of the Gauntlet wasn't, didn't Troy help? Yeah, that, was yeah, that was all for yeah. Cleef, right? Yeah. So we, we definitely, like, we kind of see... Like, what are the five factions? The five factions are the Harbors, the Order of the Gauntlet, in, 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 in order of good to interesting. <laughs> the, the Harpers, nice. the Order of the Gauntlet, the Emerald Enclave, the Lords Alliance, and the Zentar. Oh, right. I have, yeah, my, and I think the book I'm working on now has Zentar characters. And I think... You guys, the ones who yelled at us and said, put in the Zentarum and just put in the Harpers and stop yeah. screwing around with all these dumb ideas you have. <laughs> do the thing everyone will recommend. You've had another Harper, like a, like a Harper. Yeah, we had like the They had new names for were, old yeah. factions. Harper, and I, I had done this book, Lesser Evils, to sort of bring the Harpers back, in, at least in, we kind of did it in parallel without realizing it. Um, so mine over at Everland and Waterdeep, um, and they, there was this other faction, and they were running around going, like, we're the Harpers, and we're going to kill the like, Cult of the Dragon, I think. Yeah. And they're very, like, loud. And, and the, the way the Harpers in, in Fourth Edition were originally portrayed was that they kind of shrunk back to Everland, and they were very focused on shade. And so as they, as they had them grow out, they, you know, they were coming from this almost more like a freedom fighter background. And so they were, they're very sneaky, they're very spy-like, and they're, they're, they really value the Harper code and, and the secrecy, like don't, you know, don't tell who the other Harpers are, you will get them killed, you know, and don't put innocent people in harm's way. And here's these, this group of people barreling around Waterdeep, dragging out cultists and, and killing them and leaving their mark on the door. And it's like, my guys are going to have a problem with that. Um, you might be starting a war in Waterdeep. Just a little. Just a little. So we, we worked out some kinks. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All of my characters are joining Bragg and Durth, and we're going to take out this entire. <laughs> I don't know that Mintz. Oh, would, take out the Harpers. Like, that'd be easy. If, if Mintz joined a faction, I don't think he'd remember. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that they would count him amongst their numbers. But there are some sort of faction things happening in the background. So. Yeah, I think that's the overall approach. We, we, we're trying. We're going to get things wrong and kind of working together and communicate. But I think our general approach is trying to be to give the creators room to create and tell great stories and then just trying to work around that and try, try to collaborate as much as we can. Like, I wouldn't want to be in a position where we said, okay, you, your characters must now join factions or else. Like, that's really what we're... we're we, are, we don't want to do that. 
want that would be very computer gameish. Yeah. That would be computer yeah. gameish. Yeah. So that means I can take these guys to Spelljammer, right? That's cool. <laughs> We're it's, for, it's good for the story. It's good for the story. That's a good question. Jim, um, you mentioned that uh, Legends of Armageddon is, is, is your first story arc. How long is your commitment to the comic? We're going for dinner after this. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so ask, ask me tomorrow. That's an agreement. Really. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about about doing the D and D comic and both IDW and uh, Wizards. Uh, based on the first two scripts that I've delivered, uh, they seem okay with that. So I'd like to be on for a while, and I'm hoping that we can build from here with really some really fun and cool storylines that will tie into the ongoing growth of 5th edition. Yeah, um, I have a kind of historical question. I originally bought the Damara set, but it said it was made for Icewind Dale, R.A. Salvatore. Uh, do you remember in that first edition, the Cold Lands, Damara and Vasa... Yeah, that was the, the Bloodstone Lands. Yeah, the Bloodstone Lands. Yeah. It was originally written, you know, on the back and said it was Icewind Dale. So I hope it is on the It did? What's that? I didn't know that. Marketing text is a funny thing. Okay. But I got it. It was my, my favorite part of the Forgotten Realm turned out. Is that your campaign? Or no, no, no. The Bloodstone Lands with Gareth Dragonsbane and Kane the Monk and yeah. all of that. That was actually a, a series of modules that Doug Niles wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the epic level D&D modules, um, and they were really good. It's an amazing story. And I believe that Doug did, those characters were all characters that were played by people at TSR in the game that Doug ran. And then I got to use them, and then I got to put them in the book later, which was an honor because I just love them. Um, and they're wonderful characters. But no, that, and so when I did the resource book for second edition, the Bloodstone Lands resource book, right? I used Doug's modules for, uh, and then I added a couple, like Mary Braun was mine. I added a few things in to meet you because know, you had to thicken it up. But all the main characters, Gareth, Christine, all of them, they're all Doug's. And, and the people that played the game with them. Um, wonderful stuff. But that's Doug, again. You know. I don't know if you guys know that. You know that Minsk was actually a character that was played by the people who were making. Uh, the Baldur's Gate game. It was from a D&D campaign. Yeah. Before they ever got the license for Baldur's Gate, they were playing D&D um, like, the Black Isle guys. Yeah. And they were playing D&D, just their friends, all of them who worked together. And Mince was one of the characters. The player actually came up with this ridiculous character who listened to his hamster. Well, so literally, we're just writing the best damn fan fiction that ever. <laughs> <laughs> the ranger ended up with its hamster because the DM thought animal companions are broken. Right. So he said, do we have a wolf? No, bear, no. Kind of a giant space hamster. It's like, sure, as long as it's been miniaturized. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, do we have a question right here? I just have to work with that. So, um, uh, I played a route in the second, third, fourth edition by now, right? All very long campaigns. And next, the other Saturday, I'm going to start a new fifth edition campaign. What are the first steps here? What are the feeling? What, what's different? What should I pass to my players so they feel that they're starting new? And what should be the talk if you have any suggestions? Well, I would say that the most important thing between um, the realms in 5th edition is it, because of all the troubles and turmoil and the spell plague and the separation of the worlds, and the, you know, it's fresh again. 
So I, w- I would say, you know, the, the, you, have the, you have the, there are so many places that aren't known again. And that's what really should reinvigorate a campaign. Because that's not what happened to mine. It's the same type of thing. Where it, it's, when I, a lot of times when I'm signing the companions, people ask me to sign the companions, I sign, it feels like 1988 again. And that was the whole point of the book. That was the whole point of the Sundering, was to try to not reset everything, but make a logical progression from what had been to bring the place back to a, a hopeful. The Realm's fourth edition were dark, very, very dark. The Realm's fifth edition, I think it's, it's become a hopeful place. Because the original Realms were a very hopeful place. You had heroes that were taking care of the dragons, right? You were the heroes that were taking care of the dragons. And I think that's really, it's the tone. And the game plays so so easy now, right? I mean, 5th edition is an easy game to play. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. It's simple. It's not simple. It's just e- the mechanics are elegant. Well, hopefully and the so, storytelling is easier. And so it makes, it make, you can be more agile as a player. And in a, in a more hopeful realms, that's a good thing. So it feels like 1988. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yes. Wholeheartedly. See, he said it. That means it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's definitely something from the RPG side. You know, mentioned. You know, do we go back to more mode and we write about the realms? If there's an adventure and here's a room, you need to know where stuff is. We talk about the big picture stuff. Do we take a more narrative, more literary approach to it, where it's not here is the gazetteer written to a dungeon master? It's well, here's the sheaves from the sages and what they think is over the mountain. When I read the player's handbook, it felt very storytelling driven, much more so than I think in in fourth. It felt like we're building stories rather than we're pushing mechanics. And that really spoke to me as the way I like to play my game. And I know it's different for everyone and there's no wrong way to sort of play it. But to me it was felt like, not that you want to break the rules, but you want to tell stories first and foremost. And that you, you know, and I feel that's true around the gaming table as well. Is that you should be interacting with your players in a way that works for your group. And hopeful, heroic, you know, that it's not this overwhelming control of, that the rules are not there to control you, they're there to free you to, to do the game you want to do. Yeah. You know. Mike? There's a very patient guy on the back wall there in the black shirt. Do you want to just call on him? I don't know if you're going to... Yeah. Who's the, who's the, who's the, who's the, who's the who's going to ask you for the first So I think the thing is the amazing product, but the part that I'm most proud of actually is the section on inclusivity, third gender, and yeah. And so uh, I think that changed the character of a lot of people. And I was wondering how that inclusiveness will affect representation of diverse populations in the <laughs> Yeah, so the, um, to start with, in terms of our art direction, uh, if you've seen the player's handbook, so one of the things right. we 100% want to do is we know that the realm is a very diverse place. If you could walk down the street, if you could walk down an actual street in Waterdeep, you would see a very diverse place. And we 100% want to embrace that. And I think for us, I don't want any position, kind of like with the factions, of going to someone saying you must do X, Y, and Z. But what we can do is encourage it. And we can encourage it by, through our visuals, you know, by having I actually, yeah, when, yeah, when we did the comic, I said that our group had to be uh, equal male and female. That was my choice, and that was something I said right from the get-go. Uh, there's a character, there's a halfling called Shandy, and she's a, um, you know, her, she's a dark-skinned... Not drow, but like a dark-skinned uh, halfling girl, and she's this plucky, troublemaking uh, rogue. And I wanted to have more representation right from the get-go. That was something that I felt very strongly about. And as soon as I said that, 
you guys got super excited about that as well, and that we were going to show that you know the representation, the idea that this is a diverse place. And when I'm describing to Max, the comic book artist, crowds of people, I am making a point to say to him, this is not you know some whitewashed Arthurian. European mm -hmm. fantasy that this is, there should be diverse groups of people that the guards that are walking on the walls there should be women guards that there should be all these things because that is what makes the realms really cool and that is what makes we're making a fantasy world and we're making a world where we want in a game where people can feel that they see themselves represented as heroic people and I think that it's incredibly incredibly valuable and important to do that and to show people that they are a part of the stories that they're making. So. And I want to say, I, the, the changeover is really, really nice. And I mean, it started before you guys saw anything. We went to the center and they said, you know, we want to make sure that we're talking about the whole breadth of, of, of humanity. But um, And for me in particular, I have a character, Mahan. Um, Mahan is the adoptive father of Farida and Havilar. Um, and when I came up with this character, I was like, okay, he's a dragonborn, he's been exiled from his family, he's a really powerful fighter, and he's gay. And he just was. This is the character. And at the time, the, you know, the people in charge were like, we really don't want gay male characters. We don't think our audience will like them. But if I had taken that out, it would have been somebody else, and I really didn't feel good about it. So I, I did it. I tried to keep it really kind of like subtle. Like there's places where you know he is thinking about his former lover, and and there's no pronouns. Um, and so that later I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna build this up, and I'm gonna like just turn it on and be like, well, it was always there. You didn't stop me. <laughs> But then they're like, you know, no, we want to see it. I'm like, How come awesome. they never said that to me? I have an openly gay character. I don't know. At the time, I don't think they even caught it. They don't read like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it that, might be that, that I had the internal, the, the inside information. Where they're like, no, just make sure, you know. No, you have Susan editing. <laughs> Susan's very lawful. Yes. <laughs> there is a rule. Very lawful. So she's rules. good at catching the stuff. Out the door. Yes. Yeah, so that's definitely so I'm going to get back here. Uh, as we've been saying about having uh, a lot of the, the not reset, a lot of the bringing back of a lot of physical things, I did notice that in the player's handbook, we forgot about the gods. There are a lot of gods, many of which have theoretically been killed, maybe not, maybe come back. Is that supposed to be a current list of what currently is a list of gods that have come right now, or is this just every god, most of the gods that you may or may not be using depending on? what timeline you are, that we should just sort of pick and choose whatever you might work for where you are currently set in the game. I think a good way to think of it was these are the gods who could be currently in the Forgotten Realms, and probably have been in the realms, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Like it's... You're missing we are, at least one. Say what? So you're missing at least one. Yeah. <laughs> Ask guys a million times, like, what happens at Asma Deus? We are kind of in, in that sense, like in storytelling, we are trying to kind of not be like so... like as canonical as we've been in the past, and taking a more storytelling approach to here's how what people... I think you're going to see us writing in the RPG books increasingly as we go, because it's obviously an evolution, but writing more from the viewpoint of here's what people of the realms think of the realms and think is going on, rather than having a scientific objective, here is the actual fact. Sure, just as an example, about more what is one of the sponsoring things yeah. So don't take that list as the definitive list of which gods are actually aligned. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's here. Yeah. <laughs>
So is there questions here? I'm kind of so when I was reading um, the Sentinel by Troy Deming, there was this character that was in the shadows a couple times that never got really explained. And I talked to him online about it. He's like, oh, that's Durgle, the god of death. And he's going to be in each of the Sundering books, and after the Herald, you'll understand why. And if Durgle was in your three books in the Sundering, I missed him, and I still don't understand why. So was he in your books, and is there a reason for that? And, I think that was something that we planned to do, and then the, so some of us forgot. Um, some of us had, some of us wrote too many words, and decisions <laughs> 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 were made. Um, now lost to the electronics of time. <laughs> Jurgle is in the Herald. <clears throat> you have, oh, you have to read through all the scenes of the monks in Candlekeep. Pay very close attention to all the monks. I, I think I think Durgle got cut from my book, but I didn't realize it until afterwards that he got cut. But I'm not by the time the crowds in the in the internment camp. Now, and it's still true. After you read the Herald, you'll know why. Well, yeah, yeah, but 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 that doesn't mean the Herald will tell you why. It means sometime after you read the Herald. <laughs> We will tell you why. after you read yeah. the Herald, not after you Remember read the Remember, we had this whole thing about the culture, so we right? the emphasis on the syllable. Thing. Yeah, yeah. By by the time we we had that conversation, I was probably just about done with companions, and that's not really where I go in the books anyway. I mean, the closest I get to the gods is Loth, who every now and then kind of makes an appearance, um, but that's the way the books have been all along. And my job in, in Sundering was really kind of preface everything. Just just kind of give a sense that something was going on. And um, so, yeah, that by the time we had the summit, I was yeah, as the first book as the first book in the series, I was already like, done. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm working on a much smaller level. I just generally feel like the more you have deities interacting directly with the storylines, I feel it takes, first of all, it takes things to a, a level that gets harder and harder to work with because you, you're trying to exemplify physicality of you know the deities themselves and stuff like that. And I think their presence being felt, it always works better for me when I'm running games or when I'm thinking about this stuff that it's more like their presence is there rather than the direct intervention kind of stuff. And I think it gives them a greater power, you know, rather than the old first edition deities and demigods. Oh, it's got 700 hit points. We're gonna kill that. <laughs> so. In three rounds. In three rounds. As you alluded to, with um, characters coming back in almost like a reset of the realms, you know, the brought the band. Oh, I'm sorry. And with a certain bad guy who I thought was dead making an appearance in the Herald, will there be any notable realm characters that we thought were dead that all of a sudden say, hey, what's going on? And Chill out for a while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best answer of the whole thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I knew you couldn't stop there. No. I knew you couldn't stop Ed cannot give a one no, more so answer good. to anything. No, no, no. Wait here it comes, here it comes. I have to update it. Here comes the next expose. I have to update it for today's audience. Here? Nice. Oh, okay. That's good, that's good. Questions? Back here, back here. Um, I'm very excited about the new Fist um, comic. I love all the characters. But um, will we be seeing any other characters from Fist's past? 
Yeah, this is one of the things that we talked about. And the first thing we went through was kind of this morbid list of who would still be alive a hundred years later based on the, the ages of elves or dwarves and stuff like that. Like, dead, dead, might be a lich. Dead, dead, no. <laughs> and that was literally like, a, like an Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, this is some morbid shit. Like, so, uh, you know, could be alive, very old, almost dead, you know, stuff like that. And so I looked at that and I didn't want to make a story that was connect the dots that we had to have everyone show up or we had to do a checklist that felt like we were retreading the past because that's not forward moving as a story um, so I want to introduce new characters and that their plot and their motivation is what's driving the thing and Minsk is charging towards evil you know vaingloriously as always and whatnot. but um, yes there are appearances from other characters and um, without trying to give away too much one of the characters in the party is actually uh Related to the son of one of the other characters, but doesn't know that right off the bat. Son of Boo. Son of Boo, yeah. <laughs> well, at that point, it would be the son of 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 the, the son, son of the son of the son of the son of a Boo. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. No, so yeah, there is uh, there is ties to the past. Again, I never wanted it to feel like you. If you didn't play the game, that you're not welcome to read the story. But if you did play the game and you do know the stuff, you'll get added. You'll get extra oomph out of it. You'll see more little connections and trivial, you know, uh, things popping up. True story. I'm playing Baldur's Gate for the first time when it first came out. Oh, I thought you said like now. No, like, no, 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 no. When it first came out, and I'm running around with my character, and I come down by this woods, and there's a dark elf. With these two curved swords fighting. <laughs> hey, help me kill these gnolls! And I went, wow, he looks familiar. <laughs> and I went over and I am Dritz the Word and help me kill the gnolls. Like, he's in this game. Okay, that's cool. And so I, we killed the gnolls. He killed the gnolls. I watched. And I went to him and I said, and I tried every iteration of give me your equipment that I could come up with. And when he wouldn't, I attacked him and he wiped out my party. And then about... And then about um, I don't know, a couple of months later, because I kept trying to attack him, he kept wiping out my party. Uh, you know, I would save with maximum hit points, right? And then... Why are you obsessed with killing your own character? Because I wanted to stop. <laughs> I know what he's got. It's good stuff. You really are a D&D player. And so... <laughs> I want to stop. I don't care. <laughs> so, about three months later, I got a, a letter from a kid up in... Um, actually, it was an email. From a, from a kid in Canada, friend, a guy I met at, a, at one of the conventions in Nova Scotia, and he said, he says, um, Bob, I, I really hope you'll forgive me. I, I hope you don't have to rewrite the books or anything, but I killed Drizzt. <laughs> and I said, you will be forgiven if you tell me. How you did? <laughs> and he did. That's great. And I did. <laughs> I did so many times, all of my characters had as a oh, no. <laughs> Import, export, nice. Nice. kill me again. <laughs> Min Max. Um, Damn right. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you guys can say this or not, but a lot of anticipation. Uh, you know, one that forgot, Realms, Republic G-Books going to come out? Or? <laughs> <laughs> can you forecast it? Will you a great boss, Rekki Allen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. So, one of the things, kind of, we talk about here. We're not necessarily in a rush, in a rush to do like a canonical, like here's the truth of everything in the realms. But what we are doing is with stories like Tyranny of Dragons, they are going to be set in the realms. Um, and so as we roll up new options that are tied to those storylines, it's going to be a little bit more of a slower reveal rather than just one big, big canonical book. Because I think in a lot of ways we are just more like, how are we going to work together? 
from the novels, comics, RPGs, computer games. I don't want to rush into that like with the, the big canonical book because I'm not exactly yet sure what that book would look like. Yeah. So the more stuff we put in, it's going to go in. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's really good. But we have definitely, I would just this past week, right? Excel spreadsheet across my desk of like, well, what are the iconic characters? If you want to play in the realms, what character types do we want to deliver to you? So you can feel like, hey, I'm playing a really iconic realms character, like a purple dragon knight, war wizard of Cormier, uh, things like that. Brain damage ranger. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a three intelligence alert. Yeah. The, uh, so, from the character side, we're definitely looking at that. Um, but from the world side, we're going to kind of take our time a little bit. Like I said, we don't want to rush into something. We want to make sure we're doing it the right way. And I don't think we have a very answer, because I think there is a tension in the past. We've been very like, here's the realms, and everything was very detailed and very much kind of set up. But I think that there's something lost there in terms of the storytelling and that sense of mystery and that sense of tension and the sense of hope that we want to bring. And so I think we're kind of still figuring out exactly how we want to deliver that. So, so I think you'll probably see more character options coming up first in products, and then we'll kind of start building up to how we want to do basically like the gray box for, for a new generation. Yeah. So. Um, the first of this, the Sundering and the Fifth Edition knocked it out of the park. Both on the design end and the fiction end, it was, I was skeptical of the hype, and I think that it was, the, the fiction was fantastic, and I love the player's handbook. Really good job. Um, and the Sundering Adventures were, fan this is more a comment, but I do have a question after. The Sundering Adventures were fantastic background material. I felt Murders of Baldur, Murder of Baldur's Gate, uh, Ice Without Pitiful Main, and, and the, the Sword Coast. That was what I was missing when we got those Sundering Adventures. They were so, I felt like it was back. You know, to, to what I was looking for. So that, that was fantastic. But Ed mentioned the the narrator's not always right. Do you think in the comic book that applies? That's a visual thing. Well, yeah. I mean, what we're showing is real, except for a, a literal illusion. There's a... <clears throat> There's a, a part in the comic where characters are remembering their... There's two characters um, who are at odds with each other in the story. They're new characters. And both of them remember their youth very differently. So we do sort of get that kind of element of the, of the narrator. People's memories of their childhood, very different, right? So the one character, she thinks that they had a pretty good childhood, all things considered. And the other character was always jealous and was always angry and kept that... So you're going to... Basically, in issue two, you get this, not idyllic, but there's this sense of, oh, this is how this character grew up. And then, like, two issues later, you see some of those same kind of elements, but shown from a different point of view. So it is real, because they visually happen, but it's where the emphasis is put and what a character, what you see versus what is off camera, if you will. So, obviously, we can't do the kinds of subtleties that pros can do. You can't cheat. I can't cheat because you're seeing it, so it's right. all kind of happening, but we're also not doing world-bending kind of stuff either. So, it, you know, I've got different tools to play with visually with the comic, which is kind of fun too. I can do something in one panel that would take them pages to describe, you know, or it's just, it, they're different tools to play with. I'm amazed when I read really incredible prose, how evocative it is, and how much it brings out in me, and it, you know, it's intimidating to me to be taking that kind of stuff and saying, okay, what is, how do we deliver this in terms of a visual and make a really powerful emotional story, but without as much, with a, you know, even an iota of the text, 
what is the dialogue? How can we punch it? But that's sort of my specialty. I've been doing this for years, and hopefully, you know, uh, so far so good. You know, you know okay. to, to the original point, what you said, though, that wasn't by accident. And, you know, Edna, we've said this, and we wanted people to believe us because it's the truth. When we went in for the fourth edition meeting, we were told, this is what's happening, deal with it. And when we walked out of that meeting at Gen Con, 2006, 5, whatever it was, we walked out of that meeting, Ed and I looked at each other, and Ed actually said to me, he goes, well, what are we going to do? And I said to him, I go, well, I'm going to play the long game. And we were all, so both of us at that point were already thinking about what were we going to be doing five years from now? Because I think we both had an idea that the flavor of the realms was taking a twist that wasn't going to resonate with everybody. Now, you can either get mad about that, or as an author, you can use that to bring your characters to a different place and let them grow a little bit before you bring them where you want them. But I'm saying this is not an accident, because, and, and he's a big reason. And, and if you love Fifth Edition, he's a big reason. And it was Mike and his team got me and Ed at breakfast. And it was at Gen Con. And they said, okay, let us have it. And we did. <laughs> and there was no holding back. You got scars. There, there, was, there were dragons mating all over that boy. <laughs> it was, we did. We let them have it. And what they said in that meeting was, instead of, instead of this is what we're doing, they said, this is what we're doing with the game. How would it affect the realms? And they let all of us tell them. And I think they did the same thing with a lot of the game designers, guys like Rich Baker. And, and, and you, you don't hire creative people and tell them what they're creating. You give them the framework and you, you trust each other and you work with each other to fit everything together. And it'll, it'll speak to this, I'm sure. The process this time was the way it's supposed to be. And so I had great confidence that 5th edition and the Sundering and the books that follow the Sundering were going to be favorites. And if you look at what people are saying about them all over Amazon and all the other places, it worked. But there's a reason for it. And he's a big part of it. I never thought this would be something that I would bring up in public, but the first conversation we had about the comic was with the Tyranny of Dragons and all that lore, and essentially I went into this conversation like, oh, God, this isn't going to work because I, you know, I came in with a very comic book sensibility. I'm a, a lifelong gamer, but I was sort of like, I want to do this little scrappy, cool story, and this is going to be neat. And then they came at me and they said, this is Lord of the Rings, more, big, huge. And I just went, oh, it's not for me. And I was walked away from it. I, I went to bed that night. I told my wife, I said, I just turned down D&D. This is the worst. This is the worst thing. I got, I'm the biggest idiot. And she's just like, but you wouldn't enjoy doing it. It would be terrible. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know... I could have, maybe I could have figured it out, but it, in my heart I knew it would be crappy and I would put my name on it and I would always feel like, and then you guys came back to me and you said, what do you want to do? What do you think yes. will make the best comic? Mm -hmm. yep. And I was like, really? We're, like, we're back on? And I just said, I think this is why a comic story in fantasy works and these are the tools that I would work with and if you want me, this is what I would do. And you guys came back and gave me everything I wanted and then threw in this thing into, you know, there's this fan favorite character you may have heard of called Minsk. And I went, 
you've got to be kidding me. This is the greatest. Yeah. yeah, okay, let's play ball. And all of a sudden, it was like everything was new again, and uh, we were good to go. And that was, that was very empowering to me and very exciting to sort of realize that this wasn't... I've done a lot of commercial work, and some of it's gone great, and I love doing um, work for hire because it makes you flex muscles. You're having to deliver on people's specs, but I can only go so far. I've got a range, and I try and, you know push myself and grow, but I, this is what I do best. And you guys basically said, what do you do best? Because we want you more than we just want a generic D&D comic. Yep. And I was like, wow, that's so um, gratifying, and it makes me want to work harder and deliver the goods. Process was right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Always very patient with me, and we're <laughs> learning as we go. Yeah, that, that's, that's where we want to be. That was a great breakfast. That was a <laughs> so, no, 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 I haven't waited for that like breakfast for about six years. It was like, but, did he really just ask us to do that? <laughs> yeah. But it was hilariously funny because, and I, I'm not going to name the restaurant or anything, but it was a very nice restaurant. So Until Bob, would be, Bob would be going, Burn. and in the middle of it, the waitress would come in and say, more tea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking my orange juice as fast as I can. Yeah, you must have like five cartons of orange juice that day. It was amazing. And we would all fall silent and we'd stir our tea and put the tea, little tea spoons down. And she'd, anyone else? Okay. And she'd go away. And Bob would go, (laughs) You get to change the name of this panel. It's called Dirt of the Round. Look, look. That was. We're jumping a hundred years. Yeah. I'm in the middle of telling stories of characters that I've been with for 20 years. We're jumping a hundred years. Effing thanks. You know? <laughs> it was just sitting there. And you were as mad as I was. Oh, sure. You're just too polite. No, no, no. That, that was what I was finding so I'm funny. I'm not polite. I'm body. Because, you know, in would come the waitresses and we'd all go... And then... They'd go away, and then you'd see them heads go out because they wanted to watch. Oh, it was, it was funny. I swear at one point I was like, don't mess with me, Merles. I kill Wookiees. Yeah. <laughs> and my poor wife was sitting there next to Liz, shoe, and Liz was like, <laughs> and Diane was like, <laughs> and me and Ed, and I'm like, God, Ed, tell him. Because he was... He was calling me, and he'd be me, 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 me with me, and then he gets to me, and he's Mr. Polite, and I'm like, will you? <laughs> well, in Canada, we don't yell. <laughs> you just discover that somebody put salt in your tea instead of sugar. Yeah. <laughs> it's all very, yes, was there something? Well, damn it, I'm American, and we <laughs> invade the wrong country. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think it's really neat, though, when you see that there are I, I know when you buy, you guys buy these products or you see them and you want them to be perfect in every way and you think to yourself, I know when I was a kid it was almost like this mystical thing, the names of the people that made this stuff. Or I would read a module and open it and it says, they played this at Gen Con. And I was like, Gen Con? <laughs> what is this magical place called Gen Con? You know, it's like, but to know that there are real people that make this stuff and sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes they have flaws and they, their emotions and their egos are wrapped up in this stuff, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to know that there are people behind this and they're passionate about it and they want to do well. And sometimes it's a, a you know, there's business concerns and there's creative concerns and all this stuff, this tumultuous 
thing makes something great, and it's not always perfect, but damn it, you know, people are trying. I think that's great. I think that's that's a wonderful thing. The flaws make it what it is. Biggest lie you'll ever hear from a writer. I meant to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question here. It's a little, I think we have a time with two more questions, so we'll go here and then here, and then we're going to be at that time. Um, this is uh, more of a historical realms question. I was having this debate with a friend of mine right up here. There was a book series, and I think it took place after the War of the Spider Queen, in which Loth and the other proud deities were uh, the Lady Penitent. The Lady Penitent. Yes, thank you. You I know this stuff. I believe it was Carillion sat down with Loth, and the drow changed from black skin to brown. Did they? Are you asking me? I didn't read it. I don't know. I'm being honest. Um, There was... You you can only keep up with so much. And then I'm hearing that dark elves and drow are different. And and I'm like... For for years, they would say... I I kept asking to let me use Alistair in a book. And they wouldn't, because they know the only reason I wanted to put her in the book was to kill her. And they didn't want her dead. So, okay, fine. But no, I, I, I really I really don't know, and I just stayed away from it because you you can't go down at, at, at that point in the realms, at, particularly right after War of the Spider Queen, when certain things started going all over the place with things. You can't keep up with it. From I, I mean, you can't be sitting there reading all the time. You have to be writing. And so I was just telling my personal little stories, hiding in my corners. And I mean, Elastray has never been mentioned in my books. I don't think I've ever... I don't even know how to spell it. It's got two E's on the end or something. I don't know. Um, and, and that's because I hide in my little corners because when I don't, I get burned. And it's not anyone's fault. It's because game products go, let's do this, they do it, and it goes out. Novels, let's do this, and a year later, you're in the... You know, you've got it at the editor, and then it comes back, and things get changed. So you, and, I, and a perfect example, when I wrote The Thousand Orcs, mm-hmm. they said to me, look, we really want you to come out into the realms more. You can't keep hiding. We want you in the realms more. So we want you to, here's the, you know, the, the FR campaign setting book, that wonderful book had come out, and they said, can you grab some characters from this? Can you come out in the realms? Can you tell more what's going on in Silver Marches? And, and so I said, well, I love this Obul character. Can I use him? And they said, absolutely. And I said, okay, but I'm killing him. He's getting, he's getting wasted. Will that work? And they said, yes, because your book is going to be set right before... This hand, um, right before this handbook, um, or after this handbook. So the handbook will be out. This will be the time. Your timeline will be after this, so you can do anything you want to. So I wrote the book and I sent it in, and then the first thing that happens, Bobby got a problem. What's the problem? Well, your book's actually said here, Obul can't die. You told me I could kill Obul. Nah, you can't kill Obul. And so I'm going to hide my corner again. And that, that happens. And it's, it's not really anyone's fault. You can't get mad at anyone for them. It, it, it's just because there are so many wheels turning. And now they're trying to make those wheels turn with at least everybody knowing how they're turning. And that's why they're doing Tyranny of Dragons and the one next year that we're doing and the Sundering. That, that's why we're doing it because we're trying to get all that kind of mix-up out of the way at the beginning so that we can all go fly. Yeah, yeah and the guy, like, so... After Tyranny of Dragons, there's other stuff coming, clearly. 
and you guys sent me documentation. And I know what it, it is. <laughs> and and, and you basically you. said, don't worry about this right now, but if you can start thinking of this stuff in ways that we can logically move that into the story, just start sort of percolating in the back of your mind. And I was sort of like, wow, that's actually really cool. Because now I don't have to be quickly changing direction or instantly sort of turning on a dime and going, and now it's this, you know? It's not like a toy line where you're like, well, the commercial's coming out for the new toy. Can you put it in the thing? It's going to be like this nice, you know, sweeping story. It all feels like it, it fits because it should, you know? And, and I think we're also overall trying to reduce the number of wheels that are spinning in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And communicating more. And kind of like I said when I talked about Scott Brown role-playing, taking our time. Yeah. Right, trying not to rush. Oh, we need right. to do it by next year. Like, no, let's do it when we know it's going to be great. A lot like we have the playtesting edition, you know, where we said we're going to take our time. We're going. We're not going to commit. We know we're doing what we want to do. Yep. I think there's one more question over here, and I think um, I believe that um, the feeling that I felt in previous editions, especially the fourth, is that the setting had to adjust to the system, <clears throat> and this is very hurtful, I believe, for you guys. Because everything needs to be changed to be Russian. And uh, what I'm feeling right now is that what is happening is the opposite. You have a saying that you need to accommodate the rules. And I would like to know, because I believe that your intellectual property is the most valuable thing that you have. You the authors, the settings, the just love all that. And I'd like to know how this is working right now. Because uh, are you guys consulting? The authors and the authors are having more freedom, more fun to do it because, yep. hey, if you jump 100 years, I just have to kill everyone. So that's <laughs> right. I was mad. So how, how do things are working <laughs> right now between, I know that there are corporate interests and companies, but this is an imagination. Yeah. You know? so how are you doing that right now? So I thought, well, I'll, do, I'll, I'll kind of talk about the ideal situation, and maybe you guys can talk about your experiences. So when, what, where we want to be is really focused on storytelling. So rather than saying, hey, the game's changing, so therefore you have to kill Artemis, we'll just think, what would be a good story? And then also kind of going back to that idea of the unreliable narrative. Or kind of the way I like to think about it is getting out of the business of trying to hear the truth, and it's always true. Uh, as an example, let's say if we had a story where, and I'll just make something up, but um, and now I, now every example coming up is spoilers for If you think of things like, uh, oh, if you have, if you've seen a mom's manual, they're kicking around, they can do the show, there's the entry for the editor cap. And we kind of talk about how the editor cap are kind of these more fey creatures now. They kind of spider shepherds, and they like to catch smaller fae and, and devour them and things like that. We think of it from our standpoint as that's a story, but it's not necessarily like a science textbook where that might be most uh, most other caps or some other caps, but there's always exceptions and there's always different twists on that. So we're not dictating, oh, this is what must be always true. What we really want to focus on is just making sure we're enabling interesting stories and good storytelling. And so there might be, we depict, say, an Etten in a story. And, oh, it's his two heads are arguing, or he has this weird dichotomy in his personality. That's that Etten. We don't necessarily say that's all Etten's, you know, and things like that. And, and I think what we're trying to do is give that space for good storytelling. But we do also know that it's good kind of having everyone on the same page, you know, kind of in the same neighborhood. 
So we have this idea of like interior dragons, kind of unifying theme, um, where you guys, as readers, can go, oh, this is what's interesting about this year, is you know, dragons are rampaging, and that's cool, right? And especially for new readers and new gamers, where if you've never played a game before, but you've probably played video games or read other novels, we have a good hook to you that's not going down into a lot of detail. We can say just more general things like, oh, the Queen of Evil Dragons, Tiamat, is attempting to re-enter the world. And oh, okay, if I've just played Skyrim, or maybe I've read other fantasy series, or, you know, I can hear that and understand it. You go, oh, that sounds interesting, I want to check it out. So that's kind of, I think, for, from my standpoint, that's kind of the tension we're dealing with, having that freedom, but then trying to keep things focused enough so that, you know, the idea is it's, it's always possibly someone's first book or first game, you know. And so we always have that accessibility by focusing on something that's really direct and understandable. I mean, I don't know what... Well, it's really interesting because I was just thinking of this when, when you were talking about that is you almost have to retrain the audience on an unreliable narrator. And what I mean by that is computer games are not ambiguous, Right? They're not ambiguous. This is the way it is. This yeah. is the sandbox. You go kill this, you get the button, and you, you get jump. one of these pieces of loot. Then you go back, and you kill it again. You get the other piece, whatever. But even in books, I don't think people think in terms of ambiguity anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's, a real, that's a real critical thinking skill that we're kind of losing across all medium, and it's to our detriment. But I'll give you a perfect example of that. In the, in the um, book, when... when Caddy Bree is talking to Dritz. She's insisting that orcs are evil, period. Myliki told me they're all evil. They're evil. We have to kill them all. I, even the, you, know, you go into the baby's room. You, they're evil. And Bruner, of course, is all torn up about the treaty he signed. And, and Dritz is like, wait a minute. That's not, no. I met this goblin once named Nojan. And you know, no, 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 you were just misunderstanding him. They're the blah, 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 blah. They're evil. They're monsters. They're not. And the readers were mad at me. I got letters saying, I really love this book, but what is going on? Why do you say that? And da, 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 da. I'm like, well, maybe According she's wrong. According to the wrong. monster manual. Maybe she's Orcs wrong. Orcs are always evil. Yeah. Maybe she's wrong. Or maybe she's not. And, and you almost have to retrain people to recognize, did the omniscient, narrator, third-person narrator say it, or did a character say it? Because if the character said it, it's only as true as the character believes it's true. Yeah. Right? For the character. For you, it could be completely different. And if even if Maliki told Caddy Bree that all orcs are evil, did she do it honestly, or is she really just trying to start something because she's got this fight going with Loth? I don't know. And you could argue that that's why we have the published Forgotten Realms. Because... When I was really young and writing for Dragon, I thought it was rather arrogant to say, Hi, my name's Ed Green. You'd never heard of me, but I thought of a new way of rolling dice. Ha-ha. You know, instead, it was a lot cooler to say, Well, there's this old wizard called Elminster, and he talks about legends of this haunted castle. Instead of saying, In the castle, there are three orcs in room three, and their hit points are blah, blah, blah. So, the reason why you got to see the realms at all, and therefore guys at TSR got to see the realms, and therefore guys at TSR asked me if I had a world, was because I was sneaking it into dragon articles, which I was doing for two reasons. Because I thought it was fairer to my players, because everybody in the industry who could get a hold of dragon read it then, so all the players, but they didn't bring it when they were gaming at my house. So it sort of represented what their character might have heard, overheard, or the f- received, received folk wisdom. 
they didn't have their stacks of dragons beside them, but they'd all read it. Oh, yeah, he's, he was, wasn't there something about flying? Okay, you know, and that would make it in. So I thought it was fairer to my players if I put new monsters, magic items, and spells in and cloaked them in this realms thing. And it built in the DM's elbow room right in there. Yep. Because Elminster or whoever my source was might be deceiving you. And therefore, the dungeon master could say, there's no way I'm having that spell in my... Oh, the players are going, yeah, but this is really cool. It's really dry. Okay, I'll just tinker with it. So, there you go. And what does the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide say? These, these aren't rules. They're suggestions, right? Yeah. These are guidelines. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I think that to not do that is to, to diminish what you do. Yeah. In your fiction you write, in the games you play, in the characters you make. When, when I was a kid, I would read, um, I don't know if you guys are superhero fans, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. Loved it, right? But as a kid, when you're 11 years old, codification is so powerful because someone tells you what it is and what it is not. And this character lifts this many pounds, they're this stronger, so Colossus is not as strong as the thing. And this is that. And so to a kid, I think there's you want to have perfection. You want to know, if we walk into this room, there's three goblins, and they're going to do this, so I, it's like a... A flow chart that you could follow so you can't do it wrong. But I think once you get older, the subtlety and the ability of your own personal judgment and your story, storytelling intuition should be so much more important to the mix that you're not just trying to, you know, that if I DM'd the exact same module, it should be completely different than if Bob did it, than if Ed did it, than if anyone here does it. You guys all run your game the way you want to run it, and you put part of yourself into it. And if you're not, that's untrue to the spirit of the game. Exactly. So. Yep. Then you're trying to put Marvel here the Jeff Grubbs phaser system. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right, so that brings us to about 7 o'clock. Uh, we are running this panel again with a slightly different rogues gallery. I believe, Trevor, is that tomorrow or is it Friday or Saturday? It's tomorrow, 4 to 6, right? Tomorrow, 4 to 6. I'll Sweet. be posting again. <laughs> uh, so we should have, I believe, we have the Antonyms. Yeah, as far as I know, they should be here. They yeah, we have some here. And, and, uh, oh, okay, they're over there. Jim also has their signing on Saturday. Yeah, and our sign on Saturday. What time? Two. Two o'clock yeah, on Saturday. But, but I can hit them here. Wanna, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Signings are being just let them know. I'm going to Sweet. And I'm at booth 1437. Come on by and chat with me about the comic or about other stuff I'm doing. That'd be, I'd be thrilled to see you. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.